Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Bob, and I've got hooked how to build habit forming products. And I've got Nir Ayol on the line. Thanks for coming on the show, Nir. My pleasure, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, you know, we had a little preamble why Nir made a coffee, uh, you know, talking about uh, products that hook you. And uh, there's some, this is going to be a great interview, I can tell already. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, Nir, why did you feel that this book was necessary to write right now? So I'd spent uh, several years in the gaming and the advertising industries. And, uh, you know, these are two industries that are really dependent on mind control. Let's, let's be honest, right? Gaming is, is about designing these experiences to change user behavior along this path within the game. Uh, and advertising, you know, advertisers don't spend those billions of dollars for their health. Uh, they spend all that money on advertising because it gets people to do things they want them to do. And so at the intersection of these two industries, I learned a lot of techniques uh, which were very effective at changing user behavior, but I didn't really see the strategy. I didn't see the, the deeper know-how behind how these tactics work. I wanted to know why these things work, not just the fact that they did work. Uh, because you know you can get into this little trap of copying what your competition does or copying what was done before, uh, as opposed to really understanding the fundamental consumer psychology behind why people do what they do. And so I wrote this guidebook around how products change our day-to-day habits so that people designing uh, what I believe are healthy habits, people who are designing products and services that can help us live better, happier, more connected, more productive lives, I want to tell those people how to get people engaged with their products and services. Uh, you know, that's a key word, engaged, uh, because we're, we're more in a, a social environment these days. Uh, do you think that the ability to engage in and build a community is paramount to uh, the success of a product these? Well, I don't think it, it, it necessarily, you don't have to have a habit. You don't have to have an engaged community necessarily for every business to succeed. I mean, there's there are lots and lots of businesses that do not require habits. Um, you can bring your customers to your place of business uh, with advertising, you can use search engine optimization. Heck, you can have a a, a, a physical storefront, right? You can set up a, a taco stand at the corner and, and get people to come to your place of business. There's no reason you have to have a habit. However, if your product, if your business model depends on a habit, so if you're like these companies we've seen get so big so quick over the past several years, like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Pinterest and uh, all these companies kind of come out of nowhere and they get so big so fast and they create so much economic value. Well, for that type of business, they require a habit. There, It would be an existential threat to the business. The business would die if companies like Facebook, for example, had to pay some ad channel to bring users back. So if you're in that kind of business, if you depend upon people coming back on their own, then you've got to have a hook. Mm. And of course, the hook comes in many, many forms. How do people discover their hook? Yeah, so that's that's really the, the core of the book. The book is really about uh, these, these hooks that we find endemic to all sorts of habit-forming experiences. And a hook is, uh, very, very uh, briefly, I'll kind of give you an overview of what the hook is all about. Mm. It's just an experience designed to connect the user's problem with the company's solution with enough frequency to form a habit. Okay, so it's these experiences. As we do them, we form these mental associations with these products and services, and we form these habits. And these hooks 
have four fundamental steps. Every hook starts with a trigger to an action, a reward, and finally an investment. And so that's the the core framework I discuss in this book is how do you build these hooks in your products, a trigger, action, reward, and investment. I'm happy to talk about each one of those four steps. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting because there's several books out there in the market about how to undo that process if you're finding that you're uh, gaining weight. And how, why am I gaining weight? Well, you kind of reverse engineer it and you figure out what are your triggers? What's causing you to gain this weight? And a lot of times what people discover is exactly what you just described except in the reverse order. So uh, let's let's break it down a little bit more because it, it, it is fascinating. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, I would think a, um, a trigger is I'm hungry and then they reward the I'm hungry with a cookie, which is probably a bad decision. And then they get a sugar rush. They feel better about themselves for 20 seconds or whatever it is. Uh, and then the brain says, hmm, this is great. We should keep doing this. And that after a while becomes ingrained in their uh, well, sometimes a personality structure. So are we talking on that level? Well, it's, it's part of it. And, and what the book I wanted to write is really about how do you apply the psychology of habit design to products and services. I, I really think that we can build better, uh, better experiences to help people live better lives if we can figure out how to change their habits. And so that's really what the book is all about. But, you know, just opening up some general psychology textbook or some pop psychology book about habits doesn't really cut it for the product maker. And so that's really what I wanted to write for is for the business owner, the, the person who's designing a product or service. How do you change your customer's habits? And it, and, and it turns out that fundamentally the end state goal, what, what we want to do for our customers is to create a mental association with what's called an internal trigger. Mm. An internal trigger is a situation, a routine, a place, a person, or most frequently an emotion that prompts the user to action, that tells the user what to do next. But the information for what to do is in the user's head. So, for example, we're feeling bored. We check YouTube or stock prices or sports scores. We're feeling lonely. We check Facebook. Uh, We're feeling uncertain before we scan our brain to see if we know the answer. What do we do? Yeah, we Google it, right, instantly, yeah. with little or no conscious thought. And so the book is really about how do these companies create these habits. And and so the, the, my answer to that is, of course, they create these four-step hooks. Hmm. Okay, well, let's break those uh, four-step hooks right now. So sure. what's, the, what's step one? Step one is to figure out what your internal trigger is. That's what we, we just talked about, these internal, mm-hmm. internal triggers that, that occur in the user's life. Uh, but to, 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 that's the end goal. That's what we want to, to end up with is these associations with internal triggers. Uh, but to get there, one, we have to identify what that internal trigger is. What's the thing in the user's life that every time they experience, they turn to our product and solution. Then once we have that in mind, we can construct the hook to satiate that need. What we start with is the external trigger. An external trigger is something that prompts the user to action. It tells the user what to do next, but the information is in the trigger itself. So a call to action like click here or buy now or tweet this or a friend telling you about this great new app you should try out. These are all external triggers. The information is in the trigger itself as opposed to the user's head uh, for an internal trigger. After the trigger comes the action. The action is the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. These are super tiny, small actions that when I do it, 
I feel a little bit better. My itch is scratched a little bit. So uh, on, on, we talked about when I'm uncertain, I feel this internal trigger of uncertainty. The action is to search on Google, and the reward is to start getting my search results. On Facebook, it's I feel lonely, I'm seeking connection. The action is to open the app, start scrolling, that simple act of scrolling through your newsfeed. Well, now I'm kind of entertained. I'm not bored anymore. I'm, I have the social connection I was looking for, seeing what's going on in users' lives. So that's the action phase, the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. And the simpler we can make that action, the click, the scroll, the search, whatever it might be, the simpler we can make that key action, the more likely it is to occur. Then comes the reward. The reward is where the user's itch is scratched, where they get what they came for. And it turns out that in these habit-forming products, it's not good enough just to satiate the user's need, but what we find repeated time and time again in, in all kinds of habit-forming products is not just a reward, but a variable reward. And this comes from the classic work of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. Uh, you might remember uh, Skinner from your Psych 101 class, right? He, he had these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a disc to peck at. And every time they pecked at this disc, they would receive a reward. They would get a little food pellet. So at first, Skinner could train these pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry, right? Peck at the disc, get a little food pellet. Very quickly train the, parrots to, uh, the, the pigeons to peck at the disc when they were hungry. But then Skinner did something a little bit different. Skinner introduced a variable reward. So sometimes the pigeons would peck at the disc, nothing would come out, no food pellet. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And we now know this happens because it spikes activity in an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is associated with reward. It's associated with this anticipatory response. And it's that exact mechanism that keeps us scrolling and checking and using these products time and time again, these variable rewards, not just online, but offline as well. It's, it's endemic to all sorts of these habit-forming experiences. Offline, you know, what makes spectator sports fun to watch? Why do people go nuts over their sports teams? Well, there's a lot of variability there, right? There's a lot of uncertainty to the outcomes. So we find these variable rewards in all sorts of products and all sorts of commercial goods and services when it's either trying to insert some kind of variability to make the product interesting and engaging or giving the user agency and control over something that's inherently variable and uncertain. Okay, so it's one of those two things. Hmm. Finally, so that's a lot. There's a lot of psychology I'm trying to, you know, cram into a very short period of time. The, you know, the <laughs> book has a lot more about this as well. Um, and then finally, now the fourth step of the hook, the last step, which is probably the most frequently neglected step of the hook, the one where I see the most opportunity in the companies I, I work with, is the investment phase. The investment is where the user puts something into the product in anticipation of a future reward. It's not about immediate gratification. That's what the action phase is all about. The investment phase is something the user does to make the product better with use and to load the next trigger. So something the user does to, to bring them back, to increase the likelihood of the next time they pass through the hook. So for example, uh, when I send someone a message on one of my messaging services like WhatsApp or you know any number of different messaging services, I don't get any immediate gratification, right? There's no, 
uh, the, the, there's no bells and whistles and rewards and points that happen when I send someone uh, a message. But what I'm doing is loading the next trigger so that when I send someone a message, I'm likely to get a reply. And that reply sends me an external trigger, which prompts me to use the app once again and pass through these four steps of the hook. Now, the second way that investments make it more likely for people to uh, go through the four steps of the hook is by storing value. And storing value is super important because what we see time and time again in these habit-forming products is that the more they're used, the products appreciate. And that's a really big deal because if you think about everything in the physical world, right, physical goods depreciate with use, right? With more wear and tear, they lose value. But the power of many of these products, these habit-forming products, is the more we use them, the more vested we are in them, the more important they are to us. We store value in them, either with data or followers or reputation or content. We put something into these products over time that makes them more and more valuable and makes us more likely to use them in the future. Hmm. Wow, fascinating. You know, and, and you know, that last part you were talking, it reminded me of, of owning a car and talk about something that devalues itself instantly. Uh, yeah. You know, you get into your car and you're driving it around and, and after a while you have this personal relationship with your car and you, <laughs> you buy accessories for the car, even though those accessories may be quite small compared to the price of the car, you're customizing the car to become your version of that particular product. And right. it's very, very hard for people to let go and I think that's why a lot of these uh, the industry car industry people know that if you buy a car from let's say Ford or from um, Toyota, the second car you will buy will be from the same company unless that car uh, has a very negative association with it. Right, right, because we we've got this history that we've built in the car, right? Especially if you start doing little upgrades and and changes and. You know, that history with, with something that we externalize now, if we we're not satisfied with it, right? If it's instead of a variable reward, it's a variable punishment, for example, right? If the car doesn't do what we want it to do, that's a different story. Uh, but if it exceeds our expectations, if there's something that it does that, that we don't expect, then we can start to form these, these long-term relationships, so to speak, with the products we use. Hmm. So, you know, when you were putting the book together, because, you know, it, it's a lot of knowledge crammed into a, to a, a, a very short you know, book, um, because this could be a 600 page book easily, but it's not, you, you were nice enough to, to not have people have to get a doctoral degree to read through it. Um, for you, what was your biggest aha moment? Something that really crystallized for you when you were putting this all together? Right. I, you know, I think it was the fact that these, these, these behaviors, uh, that I find myself doing in my day to day life, uh, you know, checking your phone compulsively or, uh, finding yourself distracted by all the bells and whistles and notifications and, uh, you know, all of these things that, that we, we find ourselves uh, kind of hooked to, to use the term, the title of my book, that this is not an accident, that this didn't happen uh, by luck, that, that these things are designed to engage us. They are designed, they are built, they are manufactured to make them desirous. And, that's, and that to me was, uh, was very important. Uh, especially, you know, doing interviews with people who actually build these products and figuring out how do they make them so darn sticky. Uh, it, it was not by mistake. Hmm. Uh, you know, going through the book, a lot of it 
is like, I know people have been kind of using this for a long time, but now that the information age is, is upon us and, and there's all this social interaction and there's all these amazing instant gratification tools through the internet, um, do you think that's why it's becoming even more important today than it was 10 or 15 years ago? I, I certainly do. I mean, the, the, the promise of these interactive tools as well as the peril of these tools is that um, because they're interactive, because they can use our data to improve themselves over time based on this, this uh, idea of stored value, that they literally get better and better with use, um, that makes them stickier. That makes them more habit-forming and, and more potentially addictive. Now, I think that can be a very good thing. And, and let me be clear. Um, I'm I'm very glad to live in a world where Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all these things exist. I, I like these things. I think they help most people live better lives. But I also think that the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place and that we have to be careful of how we use these things. I mean, I, I don't know if you find this in your life, but you know, I, I find myself oftentimes checking these things too much and in ways that don't necessarily serve me. And so the the, the book, I wrote the book for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to help uh, entrepreneurs, designers, product people, innovators. I wanted to help these people build better products and services that help form healthy habits. And that's you know the vast majority of people who I meet with, who are uh, I do consulting for, who read the book, they're struggling to figure out how to get anybody to care about their product, right? Mm-hmm. How do I get anybody to notice me? Yeah. Now, there are some products that don't have that problem, that are very habit-forming. And those are many of the products that I identify in the book. Now, for those type of products, the, the second reason I wrote the book, the, the, you know, the, the, the first reason is to help people build better products and services. The second reason is because I want to be able to protect us. I want people to understand how these products are built to be so engaging so that we can, they can do something about it. Mm. So that if these products and services aren't serving us, it's not your fault. You need to understand why these things are so engaging so that you can break those hooks for the behaviors that aren't serving you, that aren't helping your life improve. Mm. Well, you know, you go back uh, way, 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 way back. And the biggest habit-forming uh, device that the last 40, 50 years has been the TV. Right. And it took the internet and the power of the internet and the instant gratification and the gamification of our lives to basically break that habit into a different habit. So it's not like we've broken away from it and now we're free from it. It's we've just chosen a, a, a different drug of choice. That's that's that's. Uh, I think that's a, a great observation. And, and sometimes when I hear uh, people uh, who don't necessarily use some of these services deride them and say, uh, you know, I don't use Facebook. It's so stupid. It's so frivolous. I don't play video games. It's so silly. You know, we got We have to remember too. We don't live in a behavioral vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> that the average American spends five hours a day watching television. And frankly, talk. I mean, talk about habit forming products. It is an incredibly habit-forming product to watch, to watch TV uh, that much. But, you know, I would much rather have people interact with other people through these online mediums than I would having them stare mindlessly at, at, at some television. Not that, you know, some TV is bad for you. But, you know, it turns out the stat shows us we actually have more leisure time. We actually have more time on our hands statistically, uh, even though we feel more hurried and more, you know, stressed with all the different things happening in our lives. We, we feel like we're, we don't have any time. Turns out we do have more leisure time, and that we have plenty of time apparently for for television. And so I think that there's another category that comes maybe after some of the uh, tools and applications that we've seen out there that maybe look frivolous. I, I think that's a little bit better than TV, and I think we can go even beyond that. 
I think we can get even better. We can find tools and, and applications and technologies that actually help us live better lives, more connected, richer, healthier lives. And that's what I want to help people do with this book. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, the ability to, to develop a, or utilize an app or some sort of uh, sequence of events to drive you to go to the gym every day or every, you know, every second day, that right. is a good habit to get into. And all you have to do is go to your doctor and say, hey, I've got this bad habit. I'm going to the gym twice a week or three times a week. Right. He's not going to say, well, take this to get off it. He's going to say, yeah, you're looking great. Keep doing it. Yeah. And but, I, I think that's exactly right. If we can follow some of the principles around what makes – uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram so sticky and engaging. I think I'm I'm hoping that we can use those same principles to make all sorts of healthy habits, um, you know, more palatable. Mm. Yeah, well, I think the the thing is with uh, going back to the, talking about a doctor, it's a very difficult thing to go to your doctor. You go, you got to sit in a waiting room, making the appointments and the pain. I mean, there's all these barriers to make it a non-sticky thing, which is mm-hmm. ironic because, I mean, if you could interface with your doctor more efficiently, you'd probably live a much healthier life and hence not actually have to go to the doctor when you were in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's more of a naturopathic way of approaching life, I guess. Um, so how, how do organizations look at their product, look at their service, and deconstruct it so that they can figure out uh, – how to make it more sticky and give it a book more of a hook because for them it's a forest of the tr- forest or the tree scenario do they need to get outside consultancies to come in that can look at the big picture or can they figure it out themselves well um they can buy a lot of knowledge for about 16 dollars right now on amazon and <laughs> in, this book, in this book that took me you know two and a half years to write uh, i really wanted to write it so that people could could buy something very actionable mm-hmm. it's it's I, I read a lot of business books and i'll be perfectly honest with you most of the time i don't get past the second chapter because you know, very quickly you realize that these books are filled with stories and anecdotes and f- flowery tales about how one person did this and what they were having for coffee and blah, blah, blah. I know that business people don't have time for a lot of this stuff. They yeah. want to know what do I do? And so at the end of every chapter, I say – I give a summary because I know people are short on time. They just want to know, tell me the points. And then next to that page, I give a do this now section where it tells you step by step. Here are the questions that you need to ask yourself in order to figure out how to build a habit-forming product. And this can be done at at two stages. The first stage you can do this in, and this is where companies say they get the most value out of my book and out of my consulting work, is very early stages. So before you've committed any code, before you've uh, paid any money to anybody, if you just have an idea in mind that you know depends upon a habit. And again, not every business needs a habit. And if you don't need a habit, no problem. You know, I won't be offended. Uh, there's lots of great things you can learn from uh, consumer psychology to make your product and service better. You just don't need the full hook in your business model. But if you're building a product that does need a habit, that would be a great time to, to figure out, do I have a hook built into the product? And if not, how do I build that hook? And then the other place that a lot of people will, will call me is when they say, look, we spent all this time working on this product. Uh, it needs to be habit-forming, but it just ain't, right? Like, wh- what's going on? Why aren't people using this product? It's so beautiful. We spent years building it. It's, it's so great. What's missing? And so that's another time when you, when you could take this book and, and uh, this methodology and hopefully quickly diagnose, ah, I see. The trigger isn't clear enough. We don't, haven't uh, understood the internal trigger. The action is too difficult. The rewards aren't really rewarding or we're not asking for an investment at the right time. Mm. 
you know, it's interesting because one of my questions I usually ask people is how to read the book. And I, my, my question is, could you get away with reading a book by just going to those sections uh, and, and reading the uh, <clears throat> remember and share and the do this now section uh, to skim through the book and then maybe the one that's most resonating with you, read that chapter. And then you're, you're basically, you've got the value that you need for that moment, move on. And then when you want to do it again, just go to the book and, and do it that way again. You, you might, you might. Uh, yeah. I, I, and if I actually give out people a, a workbook, which is kind of a pared down version of the book, uh, it's highly recommended, of course, you know, that you understand what these concepts are, but you know, whatever works. I understand that business people are, are very, very busy. They need, they don't have time to do all the academic research that I spent years doing, nor would they want to, because most of these academic articles are mind numbingly boring to read. <laughs> um, so no I really, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, they are difficult and, and, and I, I really, you know, I've been an entrepreneur twice. I've sold two companies. I know how difficult it is to be in the trenches. And so that's, I, I wanted to write the kind of book that I would have read. Mm. Hmm. Uh, for, for people that are um, trying to jumpstart their particular product or make it more sticky, uh, and, and you know, we have gone over the hooks and, and stuff like that, is there, is there a way to... Is it, it's, it's hard to frame the question, but you know, is there a way for them to evolve their product in, in a particular direction to, to give it more hookability, if there's such a word for that? Or do they have to kind of keep the – not worry about that and just say, no, let's just look at our product more and try and figure it out from that base? So do they take what they have now and try to build a hook or do they evolve their product a little bit so – it will fit into the paradigms that you're talking about more easily. Yeah, it's it's a good question, but uh, unfortunately, the answer is not one that I can answer. The answer has to depend on the on the product. So sometimes a, a, a client might come to me and I look at the product and I say, "Oh, this is you know this is ninety percent there. Here's the big you know here's the thing you didn't realize was important. Flip that switch, and now we've got a, a complete hook." Um, other times that's just not the case. I mean, sometimes, unfortunately I have to come in, uh, and, 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 and shoot the horse, uh, because it's got a broken leg <laughs> yeah. and we just say, look, this is not going to be habit forming product. It has a, a fatal flaw here. Either, you know, something's wrong with the hook. It's not used frequently enough. Perhaps there's some problem with the product that is never going to make it a habit we got to start over, but that's not something I, I can, you know, that, that's something that the, that the company will need to know based on uh, the aspects of, of how far along the product is and, and, and that specific product's attributes. You know, it's interesting because that's, that goes right back to uh, pivot strategy where you have to have an organization that's willing to understand that, look at this product, if we can't even give the product away, mm. then why are we actually building it? Why are we spending money doing it? Let's take our knowledge base, let's take our, our people skills and pivot and try and make another product, like you're saying, that is, uh, has more uh, hook potential. Right, right. That that sometimes is the answer. You know, hopefully not. Uh, but uh, so, you know, then again, that's not the worst outcome. Remember, you know, the, the the worst outcome is wasting tomorrow on building what you should have killed today. That's yeah. that's the worst outcome. The, the worst outcome is not shutting something down, uh, because then that means, hey, you're free tomorrow to work on something that might work. <laughs> uh, what I see happening with a lot of companies, specifically those who have. Uh, gotten their expectations ahead of them in terms of raising too much money or you know whatever it might be 
where they they just have to keep building and grinding and grinding and building something that's just not going to work. So wouldn't you rather know it's not going to work so that you can get out of that business or pivot away from that line of business? Uh, the sooner the better, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you're, you know, in, in, in chapter seven, case study, the Bible app, I'm fascinated with this. Can we just discuss that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. The Bible app is a very interesting habit forming product. It's one, I use that example because, uh, you know, throughout the book, I talk about examples that people know well, right? Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, these consumer applications that people kind of know and, and maybe have used. Um, even though there's, I should say as a disclaimer, there's lots of products that are habit forming outside of consumer tech. Uh, you know, there's, there's enterprise products, there's all kinds of different products. Uh, but the Bible app was one that, 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 few people think of as a habit forming product. And so that's why I wanted to break it down because, um, you know, I, I do this kind of cognitive uh, examination of what's going on behind the Bible app. And it's a huge app. It's unbelievably successful. It's, it's run, it's owned by a church that makes no money on it. But when I asked venture capitalists to look at this company in terms of their stats, you know, I asked them here in Silicon Valley, what would this company be worth if it was uh, a for-profit entity? And they said, you know, in the certainly in the hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of dollars of value that, that this company might be worth if it was traded publicly. Uh, it's an incredibly engaging app. It's got a huge audience. I think it's well over 100 million uh, installs today. Mm. And it has a great hook. They have these four steps of the hook built into the Bible app. Uh, and that's part of what makes it such a sticky product and why people use it so frequently. Hmm. Well, and it, it's a huge demographic as well. Right, right. So market size is kind of, uh, you know, that, that, that's a must no matter what you do. <laughs> Even if your product is super engaging and super habit forming, but there's only 10 people in the world who would ever find it useful, it doesn't matter how habit forming your product is. Mm. Well, what about a product that's, that's more of a specialty or a luxury item, let's say um, high-end sports cars? And, uh, and I'm not talking, you know, uh, Ferraris and and really super crazy high end, but you know something that's up there, a high end BMW. Um, how how does this type of of uh, marketing philosophy work for something like that? Yeah. So the 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 for the majority of the history of advertising, the methodology used was we're going to show you ads that over time will create associations in your mind with how we want you to perceive the brand, right? So when you think about BMW, the reason you have a certain association with uh, a BMW and a Rolls Royce and a, and a Mercedes Benz differently than you might think if I said a brand like Hyundai or Kia, the reason you think of those things differently is because of the branding uh, that has been projected at you uh, in your lifetime and you form those associations. Now, somebody paid for that, right? Somebody paid a lot of money for you to associate uh, a certain appeal with a certain brand. Whether or not that is actually the case and actually higher quality is totally irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail here, but if you actually look at the guts of, of what's, what's happening in these cars, it certainly doesn't justify the marginal cost, right? Yeah, I'm not saying sure. I'm not saying that a Mercedes-Benz is not better than a Hyundai. Is it 10 times better? Absolutely not. There's no way. It can't be. So that value, that 10 times X value capture is, is earned by the company, not from reality, not from rational thought. It's earned 
by associations. It's earned by perception within the mind of the consumer that makes them believe that that product is 10 times better. Okay, mm. So that's the old way of doing things. The old way of, is by buying that perception through advertising. The new way to do it, and what's so revolutionary today, is that now companies that I mentioned earlier, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, all these companies today that are generating billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of, of, of enterprise, oh, sorry, not hundreds, tens of billions of dollars of enterprise value, they're not buying advertising. What they're doing is, is creating an experience. So Facebook creates habituated users, not by, send, you know, by sending them ads, not by you watching commercials. I mean, how many Facebook commercials have you ever seen in your life? Probably none. What they are doing is by making these products habit-forming experiences. And as you use these products, you, you create these mental associations. You use the product habitually because, because of the product itself. It's the way the product is designed to be used. Mm. Well, okay, so the, in that, that case, it would be, to, to take that scenario, uh, for high-end sports cars, the dealerships uh, should be actually building communities where they take that same sports car, take it to a racetrack, and have the people drive the car at the speed it was designed to, to have an experience of driving 200 kilometers an hour or 150 miles an hour on a, in a safe racetrack, and then when they get out of the car, they're hooked. Maybe. I, I would be skeptical, and I'll tell you why. Mm. Because um, you know, there's there's a risk there, and the risk is that someone drives one of these cars. You 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 drive the Mercedes Benz, and then you realize, wait a minute, just a car. <laughs> it's just a car. <laughs> it gets me from point A to point B, and the majority of the time, I can't drive over sixty five miles an hour unless I want to get a ticket. Mm. And so, it's not that much better. So. I would actually not advise that. What I would advise doing is maybe forming a community or, or a group or supporting these, these enthusiasts to spread the myth and the lore of mm. these products. If, mm. that's, if that's your aim is to justify the 10x cost, then you want the brand associated with something that is, has nothing to do with reality because the reality is it's just a car. Well, and then if it is based on reality, you can actually throw science on that to prove it one way or the other. But if it's a myth or a lore, it, you're, right. it's something in the air. It's very hard to quantify. Right. And now, and I'll tell you why, I'm, why this is pissing some people off, because these kind of things are religion. Mm -hmm. These kind of things are the kind of things that people have. On, you know, if you think about it, nobody, nobody argues about whether, uh, you know, things that are facts that everybody agrees on. The things people get hot-headed about and disagree about are the things that people are not really certain about, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, these touchy topics that you never discuss during dinner parties like politics, child rearing, money, and religion, well, branding is some of that because I can't, you know, you can't objectively prove uh, that, that a Mercedes-Benz justifies 10x the price of a Hyundai, it, but it's, it's this myth and lore and religion of the belief of what it means to me that, that you you know that that is impossible to argue with. Just as if I told you, no, don't be a Democrat, don't be a Republican, change change your ideology. You know, it, 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 you can't you can't do that, <laughs> and it and it makes people very angry. Mm. Well, and and that reminds me so much of uh, the lure of uh, the Apple product, the Macintosh, where right. you're either a fanboy or not. And you know, for many 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 years, 
I've used Macintosh and they're very, very well engineered and they do what they need me to do. But I've also been in the advertising industry for a long, long time as well. So I can see through a lot of that stuff and, and how they make it, you know, you, you look at the product shots and it's, they look fantastic, but when you're actually yeah. working with them, they're just a computer for gosh sakes, and it's your right. ability to utilize the tool that gives them value. So, yeah. you know, you, you nowadays I use uh, multiple devices. I use Apple, but I also use um, Samsung devices because of tablets and stuff. And I'm running into this scenario where I'm, I'm having to explain to people it's just a tablet. It's just right. a phone. You don't right. need to buy an iPhone. But people are, you know, I got a friend that works in, in, a, in a phone store and basically he has people coming in demanding an iPhone. And so mm. what do you need the phone to do? I don't care. I need an iPhone. My 14-year-old right. daughter comes to me and says, Dad, I need an iPhone. Says, Why? Because everybody else has one. Mm. There's no logic. It's all hook. Right. And that's well, there, the mastery. There, there, there is something I, I don't want to sound like I'm against this stuff because in in some ways these things make us happy. So I, I don't I'm not sure where I sit because I know these things are um, engineered. They're manufactured. Our desires are manufactured. On the other hand, when people tell you that they that 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 a certain product or service is better, and they believe it's better, they're not lying to you. To them, it is much better. And I'll, I'll give you a great study that shows this is the case. Take wine. Mm-hmm. Wine snobbery has been shown to be bunk. It's pretty much bullshit. Yeah. And, and, and there's been study after study that shows that even the finest sommeliers in the world can't tell objectively a better wine from a not as good wine because it's all subjective right Mm -hmm. that even when they were given the same wine and asked to test it multiple times they will rate it differently based on uh its color based on the context based on all these exogenous factors right when you put dye inside white wine the sommeliers will tell you it tastes jammy Mm. right we can taste perceptions uh, we can change perceptions based on appearances based on contextual cues here's a great example of that price a great study done by a, a colleague of mine at Stanford uh, who took people inside an fMRI machine and asked them while they were in this fMRI machine, their brain was being scanned to see uh, how much blood flow was going to different areas of their brain. And they gave, he gave them different types of, uh, of wine. He said, okay, here's a wine that costs $9. What do you think of this wine? He could see what was happening in their brains while they were describing what, what was happening in the wine. Or in, in, what was happening when they tasted this wine. Then he said, okay, here's a $95 bottle of wine. I'm going to give you this, this wine now to taste. What do you think of this wine? Well, people preferred, by and large, the $95 bottle of wine. And they're, not only did they say they preferred the $95 bottle of wine, but their brains actually registered. They weren't lying. They really believe we could see in their brains that the areas associated with pleasure and reward were, were more active when they were given the more expensive wine. But of course, here's the kicker. Here's what we psychologists love to do to people all the time. It was the same wine. Mm. And so it wasn't that people were lying and saying that they preferred the, the $95 bottle of wine because it was $95. They had no idea it was the same wine. Their brains was, were actually telling them they enjoyed it more. And so when someone tells you, oh, this product is better, I know for a fact it's better, they're not lying to you. It is better in their minds because when it comes to many of the products and services we consume, perception is reality. 
Absolutely. Well, a lot of the products we, we utilize are the same. Like a pencil is a pencil, but, you know, there's a five-cent pencil and there's a $30 pencil. It's right. still a pencil. Uh, right. If you look at a pen, it's a Mont Blanc pen, but uh, you can also get a big pen. that costs a lot less than a Mont Blanc pen. Ironically enough, I did uh, go onto uh, YouTube one day and it says, well, how to game a Mont Blanc pen. You basically went in, you bought the Mont Blanc filler, which is what the pen is, Mm. and you made it uh, fit into this $3 plastic uh, pen. And I started using it and I actually found that the $3 plastic pen, I enjoyed writing with more than the Mont Blanc ballpoint. Right. So ironically, even though we stripped all the way, the actual product itself, worked for me because it was more functional. So I got hooked because it had a nicer flow. So now I yeah. utilize that pen and I'm not so impressed with Mont Blanc when I see somebody whip one out because <laughs> for them, it works for them not because it's a great pen because it has the status, it has all this other stuff and that's really right, what we've right. just been talking about. And I don't mean to make an ethical call on this stuff. I mean, if it makes you happy and you earn the money, sure. why not spend it, right? right Absolutely. Right. So the, and these things are better. I'm not saying that a Mont Blanc pen is not better than a, a big pen. What I'm saying is it's probably not 10x better. You know, yeah. it's probably not. It doesn't justify the price difference. That has to be manufactured. The, the perception that you believe it's worth 10 times, 100 times more, that needs to be manufactured. Yeah. And, and you know, there's there are products out there that are incredibly expensive, but they're beautifully engineered. You look at right. um, uh, a Rolex watch. Well, I just saw an article and... It takes a year to make a Rolex watch. Well, I didn't know that. So a lot of it's about education. There are products out there that actually are worth the 10 times more because they actually are engineered and there's that much time and love put into that product. And right, but, I totally But remember, get that. too, even that is a very sophisticated piece of consumer psychology. Oh, absolutely. Because just because it's been, this is called the endowment effect, mm-hmm. that we value things more highly when they have been endowed with labor. Mm-hmm. So the fact that labor has put into it has absolutely zero to do with why you would buy a watch. The functional reasons for why to buy a watch are to tell the time. Yeah. But the fact that we have this endowment effect, which marketers use brilliantly all the time, they take one piece of information, the fact that something took a long time uh, to make, or took a lot of effort, and they endow this product with that value. So it's, it, it's not that these things don't have a value. They certainly have the perception of value. The fact is, you know, the, 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 the conversation, though, I think the curiosity, the irrationality is around, well, why does that have anything to do with why you would wear <laughs> where the, what the product is functionally supposed to do? Yeah, yeah, well, the status symbol and all the, the, the right. sociological stuff related to it. But, yeah, it's the same argument of, you know, why buy a $6,000 camera body when you can buy a, well, actually, your phone. Mm-hmm. has the same device built into it and it may right. not be able to capture 100% of the shots but it'll for the average person it'll capture anything you need so right. why do you need the big camera but of course everybody covets the big camera Yep, that's right. It's weird. Uh, Hooks on hooks on hooks. This is awesome conversation. We can go on forever. We've been talking with uh, Nir and his book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Amazing stuff. And uh, I would highly recommend it because, number one, it will make your shopping habits change for sure. (laughs) And uh, it'll help you understand why you have to click on your email 56 times a day to make sure if... (sighs) Maybe somebody will send me another email. Maybe they will. (laughs) It's really an eye-opener, this book, so I'd highly recommend it. Thanks for coming on the show. 
Thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Hey, uh, before we go, where should people go if they want to learn more? Sure. So I blog at nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So nearandfar.com. And the book Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week. 